As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we now desire really to listen to you. Um, We've been worshiping, and uh, you've informed our worship by way of the scripture that we've read, by way of the songs that we've sung, uh, by way of the profession that we've made, and we trust that you have been glorified in our worship thus far. Now we continue to worship by listening. And we pray that you would help us to listen, to think, and enable us to believe. And that we would leave this place um, with our faith strengthened and lives renewed. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to James in chapter 2. James in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament. James chapter 2, please. I want to read verses 14 uh, to 26. James 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith Save him. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works... You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, uh, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. James asks a very, very important question. He asks the question, can that faith save him? And he asks that question in response to a previous question in verse 14, which is this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works Can that faith save him? In other words, the faith that he says he has. Now, this is crucial to us, of course, because faith is crucial in the life of a Christian, in the life of a believer. Because we know we're saved, that is reconciled to God, forgiven our sins, declared righteous in his sight, have eternal life. We're saved by grace through faith. I read that in Ephesians 2 just earlier this morning. 
Galatians, excuse me, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so, so we, have to, we know we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, let me just take you through, grab your Bibles, uh, a walk down biblical lane here. Um, John, for instance, you know this when you don't have to look it up, but go ahead and make sure you look it up anyway. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we know believing or that is having faith is, is crucial. There's no eternal life without it. And then in John chapter 6 and verse 40, we read this. Jesus speaking, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. In other words, faith, believing in Jesus, is necessary to have eternal life, to be raised up, if you will, on the last day. And then... We remember from uh, Holy Week, I preached from this text throughout the course of the week uh, from John in chapter uh, 20 and verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there isn't any life except in the name of Jesus. And there isn't any life in the name of Jesus except by believing in him. So we must have faith. And then even in the early church, of course, this was the emphasis of what was taught. You might remember there was a time when um, uh, Paul and Silas were in jail and they were, they were singing. This is in Acts chapter 16, so you can find it. Uh, that uh, Paul and Silas were singing and uh, all of a sudden they were set free from being in shackles and... Uh, the, the jailer who had them, who was watching them, uh, was amazed by that. So Acts 16 verse 30 puts it like this. Then he brought them out, that is the jailer, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so again, uh, when asked very directly the question, what must I do to be saved? The answer is you need to believe, you need to trust, you need to have faith in Jesus and then Romans in chapter 3, in verse 28, Paul puts it very succinctly. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, there isn't anything we can do in order to earn it. We're not that good. We can't do it. We won't do it. And so the only way that we can expect to be reconciled to, be God, through, to God is through faith in Jesus. He's the one who's done it all. We sang that Jesus is our all. He's our righteousness. He obeyed for us. And he died for us that our sins might uh, be forgiven. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to tell us the importance of faith, even by going all the way back to our father in the faith, Abraham, in Romans in chapter 4, just the next chapter over. Verse 1, what then shall we say we gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, so Abraham's righteousness, he was declared righteous. That's what we call justification. You know that, right? That when we talk about being justified in the presence of God, it means that he makes a declaration that we're righteous. Now, what's amazing to us and sort of stops us in our tracks is that we know that we're not in and of ourselves. That's why the reformers called it an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's put upon us, that we're clothed with, that's imputed to us, that's given to us. God looks at you and me as believers in Jesus and says, you're righteous. And he says that on the basis of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. We are united to that righteousness by faith. You get that, right? Okay, you need to if you don't. We're in trouble. Then chapter 5 and verse 1 in Romans, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're justified, declared righteous by faith. Maybe a little more redundant. Romans chapter 10 uh, in verse 9. Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Saved by faith. Believing in uh, Jesus. Uh, and, and, uh, and then Ephesians. I read this moments ago, but let me read it again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any of us should boast. Okay, I could keep doing that through the New Testament, but you get the point that we're saved by grace through faith, by uh, believing. James knows this. James knows that, that we're saved by grace through faith. In fact, when he introduces um, his letter in chapter 1, he's telling them that the whole theme of what he's going to write to them about is what it means to live according to this faith. Notice, remember, uh, James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith. He says, what I'm going to write to you about is how our faith is tested. So he's assuming, if you will, their faith. He's assuming they have this thing called faith. He's assuming they, they believe. He's assuming that God has declared them righteous on the basis of faith. And now what he's going to do is flesh out what it means, this whole thing about faith. And he begins by saying, I know you're in difficulty. Remember, these were people who had been persecuted and had left Jerusalem. And now they're scattered around and about. And he says, I, I know that you're going through these difficulties, these trials. You need to understand their tests of faith. And, what the, and the purpose of these trials is to prove your faith. And to purify your faith. It means to test it, to purify it. To, to, to burn out all that isn't real faith, that you think is faith but isn't. But, but it's, it's going to be left with a real faith. Remember when I preached through that, I said, oftentimes people come to me in the midst of difficulties and they say, I don't think I have any faith. And I said, oh no, what you have is faith. What you've lost, <laughs> what's been burned away and taken away is all that you thought was faith. But it wasn't. You were trusting in all these other things, but you didn't know it. And now they're gone. And all you have left is Jesus. 
So this is, this is really it. This is the, this is the essence of your faith. This is, it's being been purified through that. So James assumes they have faith. In fact, when we get to chapter two, verse one, he starts out with the same understanding. He says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's saying, I know you hold or you possess faith in Jesus. Right now, what does that look like in your life? What it looks like in your life is that you don't show any partiality. You don't show any favoritism. You don't don't judge each other on the basis of these silly externals that mean nothing really in the whole scheme of things. So you're judging each other by these things, but, but, but that you shouldn't be. And if you really hold to the faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory, you won't do that. Why? Because when you do that, you're breaking the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And the illustration he used for them, which was no doubt a real one in their lives, was that when rich men would come into their worship space, their sanctuary, their gathering for worship, they would treat the rich person differently than the poor person. They would treat the rich person better, give them the best seats, and the poor person they would put off to the side. He said, no, 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 if you really hold to the faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory, you won't do this. Why? Because it breaks the royal law, which is to love your neighbor uh, as yourself. Now, when he says that, you get this thought. Wait a minute. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. It sounds like now I have to have faith and obey the royal law. What's the deal? I thought I couldn't be saved by obeying the royal law. And now you're telling if I don't obey the royal law, somehow it's inconsistent with my faith. And and James would say that. You're right. It is inconsistent with faith. That's my point. So I want to ask this question. If you say you have faith, will that faith really save you? What's he after? He's after defining what faith really is. What's it really mean to believe in Jesus? And how do you know if you really do? What's it really mean to believe in Jesus? And how do you know if you uh, really, really do? He's, he's already played his hand uh, in chapter 1, of course, in verse 22. When he says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourself. Oh. See, he said that we need to hear the word. Of course we need to hear it. We need to be, we need to hear it. We need to be quick to listen. Right? So faith, as Paul says, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we need to hear it. No question. But if you only hear it and you don't respond in any way to it, then you're deceiving yourselves, right? So you need to be doers of this word. And so even in verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious, and he uses religious in a positive way, as being faith in Jesus, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He says it's easy to deceive ourselves. It is It's easy to say... But but is that really true of you? How do you know that? So, 
If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their afflictions to keep oneself unstained uh, from the world. In other words, if you believe, then what you believe is translated into your life. It informs what you say. It informs what you do. And that's his very point. It's a simple point, really. It, it shouldn't come as any huge surprise to us. In fact, all throughout the scripture, this is the case. For instance, let's do another trip down Bible memory lane here. Uh, Matthew and chapter 13. The best job in the world. I read the Bible to people. Um, Matthew, and you thank me <laughs> and pay me. It's amazing. Matthew 13. It's the parable of the sower, or I like to call it really the parable of the soils. But however you say it, you remember there's a, Jesus tells this parable, the guy goes out, sows a seed, it's the word of God, and it falls in various places. And we know that the first three places, uh, it really doesn't take. First place, it falls on, on the hard ground and Satan comes up and takes it away. And so there's, there's really no faith. In the middle two, there seem to be some inklings of faith, right? It sort of springs up, sort of, but it gets choked out. It doesn't continue on. What's true about real faith? Verse 23. As for, the one, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears of the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. The point being, when the word really takes effect, right? Then there's fruit from that. There's fruit from that. It's visible. And turn to Matthew chapter 25. This we know as this uh, parable of, of the sheep uh, and the goats, right? This final judgment scene where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And it, what's, what's fascinating here is that he she- separates the sheep and the goats on the basis of one hand, what they don't actually know they're doing. And on the other hand, something that they are doing and not doing, right? You remember... That, well, I'll just read some of it. So the Son of Man comes in glory, verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, um, the sheep people, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, given all that we know, we would expect Jesus to say, Because you trusted me. Because you believed in me. And, and I was your righteousness, and I was the, 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 the death for your death, that you may live. So come, and, and because you believe in me, but he doesn't say that. Uh, verse 35, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? I said, wow, we didn't even know that we were doing that. And he said, okay, we'll answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. 
So what were we, what were they doing, the sheep? Well, clearly they trusted Jesus and all that. That's a given. But, but, but what were they doing because they trusted in Jesus? They were loving their brothers. See, these brothers of Jesus are other believers. Not everybody in the world. We're supposed to help everybody in the world. That's fine. But these brothers of Jesus. And so remember the commandment that Jesus gave to them to love one another as I have loved you. And he said, well, you did that. So I can evaluate you on the basis of that. I thought we were supposed to be evaluated on the basis of faith. Well, yeah, it's the same thing. If we believe and trust him, then we will love. Because love is a fruit of the faith that we have. And that's the evidence of the faith that we have. Uh, Even in the Great Commission, uh, Matthew chapter 28. All authority, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. <laughs> make disciples, name of, and baptize in the name of the Father and Son, Holy Spirit. You see, the hope is to bring people to faith, to believe in Jesus and to trust in him, certainly teaching them, but also teaching them to obey. They go hand in hand, you see. What a horrible thing is just to bring someone to faith, say you're forgiven, now go live as you wish. No, you're forgiven, filled with his spirit. Go now live. And how do you live? Uh, by following by following him uh, for sure, right? That's how we are to live. And as I mentioned, John chapter 13, Jesus says to his disciples, it's how people will know, this is the evidence, so people will know that you're my disciples if you really love each other. And in fact, I won't read the whole book of Romans to you, but the whole book of Romans is set up just like this, right? Chapters 1 through 3 tell us all about our sin. The end of chapter 3 tells us that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by believing in Jesus. Chapter 4, just like Abraham. So chapter 5 begins to sum it up by saying, uh, having been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified, be declared righteous by faith. But then what does Paul do in chapter 6 through 8? In chapter 6 through 8, he addresses then, okay, now that we've been justified by faith, does that mean we can continue to sin? And he simply says, that's silly. Why would you even think that? You've died with Christ and you've risen with him to newness of life. So now count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Don't offer your members, uh, the members of your body to sin, but to righteousness. No, to live in this righteous way. And then he, in chapters 9 through 11, he goes through again and he talks about grace. And how we're saved by grace through faith. And then chapter 12 begins that we're to be transformed. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then he tells us how we're to live. See, it's always that way, isn't it? Ephesians is the same way. The passage I read in Ephesians in chapter 2, the, the verses I keep reading, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. All right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk 
in them. He says, listen, we've been saved by grace through faith. Why? So that as he works in us, we can do those works good that he prepared in advance for us to do. He's got stuff for us to do and it's good. So we should do it. Right? Um, we spent a long time earlier on the book of Titus. And, and it's the same point in the book of Titus, you know, as we, as we, read, as we read through that. In fact, uh, Paul begins uh, by saying this in Titus chapter 1. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And that's his whole theme there. The apostle's whole theme is we believe, we have a knowledge of the truth, and this strikes the same chord as godliness. So much so, he says in chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. You see, he says, this is the, the grace of God has come and saved us. Why? So we can live godly lives. These aren't opposed to each other, but they go together. Now there's a progression. There's a one and a two. The one is faith. The two is how we live. Faith comes first. Then we live according to it. Faith comes first, transforms our lives. Then we live according to it. We don't go from works to faith. We go from faith to doing that which is good. We're not saved by works on our own. These are good enough. These will satisfy. No, 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 no. We're saved by grace through faith. The works of Jesus save us. His righteousness is death. They save us, trusting him. But then what happens? <laughs> then we become conformed to his image. Always, that's the way it works. All right. Now that we got that straight, James' question is very important to us. Can that faith save you? What faith? The faith you and I say we have. Will that faith save us? What will give us assurance that that faith will save us? He gives us four illustrations. After each illustration, he sums up. After the first illustration, he says this. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. After the second illustration... He says this, verse 20. Uh, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Then, in the third illustration, he says somewhat confusingly to us, in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's really very easy to figure out when we get to it. And then verse 26, for the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the first illustration, he says this, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily clothing, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things for the body, what good is that? Now your answer would simply be, it's no good at all. You know, whether it's a person of faith or not a person of faith, if someone needs something and you sort of pat them on the head and say, be warmed and filled, have a nice day, they're really in need. It hasn't helped them. He says, well, faith is like that. If you simply say you believe, but there's no action. You say you believe, but your life sort of speaks against it, or at least doesn't speak for it. Oh, yes, this is what I believe. Then it doesn't help at all. 
And most particularly in this case, we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. More particularly, as believers, we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so the point is, can faith that simply says, I have faith, but doesn't love, can that faith save? And James would say, that faith is dead. Meaning, it isn't faith at all. It isn't faith at all. That faith is dead. Of course, we're not here, I'm not here, to lay huge guilt trips on us. Now you have a list of the 14,000 people you haven't loved. I know, I know, right? No. Remember that these are illustrations, number one. And number two, though, that when we read this, how does it, what does it spark in you? What does it spark in me? If it sparks a sense of, that's right. And it sparks a sense of, Confession, and it sparks repentance. Oh, yes. Yes, you're right about this. Forgive me. And then it sparks in us a desire to do that which is good. And then it sparks in us, Lord, please help me be more discerning. Lord, help me be more loving. Lord, help me. Then we're on the right track. Can that faith save me? Just don't stop at that. (laughs) Because that repentance is insincere. If we just stop there and go, I should be doing that. No, no. Love, you see. Love, you see. Our love for one another, our love for those in need, is evidence that that faith saves. If we just simply go out and love one another without any faith in Jesus, that doesn't save But faith, you see, shows itself in love. Second illustration. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, somebody's trying to split the two up as if they're antithetical or or if you could do one and not the other. And, And for James, that isn't true at all. He says there's a link between, just as we saw in all those verses we took from the sower, parable of the sower on through Uh, other passages in the New Testament. There's a link between the two. And James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. It it wasn't, we've said this before, but isn't it surprising and, and somewhat ironically humorous that when Jesus was walking around, the demons always knew him. His disciples often didn't have a clue. But the demons had had a really good Christology. They understood that he was the son of God. And they understood that he had come to destroy them. On many situations, they tried to bargain with him. Don't, please don't, please don't. Because they knew who he was. But it didn't produce in them the kind of, it wasn't the kind of faith that saved them. They were terrorized by him they shuddered it wasn't proper fear but it was a it was a a terror of him because they knew only that they were doomed because of him and so it didn't produce in them any obedience to god or any love for one another and so with that faith saved those demons even though they said they believed in god no didn't save them at all that faith would be useless just to know it in your head and say it 
but it have no impact in your life. Then verse 21, the third illustration. Actually, these last two illustrations are positive illustrations. The first two negative ones, but the, the last two are positive ones. What does it really mean then to have faith that saves? And so he begins with Abraham and then moves to Rahab, which is an interesting juxtaposition of two Old Testament people. Because Abraham was the father of the faith. He's always the trump card for anybody. You want to, if it's true for Abraham, it's true for the rest of us kind of thing. Especially if you're Israelites. Um, but Rahab was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. She lied. And yet, she's held up for us as an example of the kind of faith that really saves so Abraham first. And, and uh, uh, James uh, highlights two situations in the life of Abraham. And he does it in a particular order. He doesn't do it in the order that Paul would have done it. He doesn't put it in the order that I would like him to have done it. But he puts it in an order that fits his purpose. His purpose is to show us that what we do needs to be consistent with our faith. For our faith to be justified, that is to say that, oh yes, we really do have faith, saving faith. And the two incidents are the time that that um, Abraham was called by God uh, to kill his son Isaac. And Abraham obeyed. We'll tell the end of the story in a minute. The first one is when... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So turn to Genesis 15. We'll take them in the order that they come chronologically. Genesis 15. The women of the church have just done the whole read through you. You don't have to turn to this. You already know it. But you remember in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. They later changes his name to Abraham. So literally out of the blue, he just arrives on the scene. He picks this guy from all the other people on the face of the earth on that day. He takes this man, Abraham, and he makes promises to him uh, that, uh, that, that he'll, he'll, he'll bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him. Um, that he'll make his name great, be a father of nations, many descendants. And that uh, through him, all the, seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, then nothing happens for quite some time. Chapter 15, then, we read this, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, uh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, for the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Because, you see, God had made promises to Abraham that he'd have a lot of descendants. And by this point, he didn't have any. And he's, he's figured he's going to leave everything to Eliezer, his um, his uh, his his servant. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he uh, brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, number the stars, we're able to number them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it, that is, the Lord did, to him as righteousness. He said, You're righteous in my sight, because you trust me. Because you believe in me. Abraham didn't do anything for that. He simply believed God and counted it righteous. In fact, the way Paul interprets that, I read it earlier for us from Romans in chapter 4, that 
Abraham is the father of all who believe because he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't on the basis of anything he did. In fact, if you read the rest of the chapter, you read all that Abraham uh, contributed to any of this whole thing was he slept. And God did everything else. He just slept. And God made covenant with him and made these promises to him. And then, in Genesis, in chapter 22, we pick up the rest of the story. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, what did he test? The same thing that James says that God is testing in us. God is testing our faith. God tested his faith. Chapter six, um, chapter 15, verse 6, he, he believed God and it was counted as righteousness. Will that, if I could impose a little James here, will that faith save him? Was that real faith? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on, the one, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and, and went, rose and went to the place which God had told him on the third day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. And uh, Abraham took the wood and so forth and he laid it on Isaac. Isaac says... What about the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And both of them went together. Now, just think about this. Abraham had been promised many descendants. Isaac was it. He was the heir to the promise. He had no other children. Isaac was it at that point in time. And now God says, I want you to kill him. Now, parentheses, bear in mind that Isaac was the safest person on the planet that day. This was not a call for child sacrifice. If Abraham disobeyed, Isaac would live. And if Abraham obeyed, Isaac would live. He might be a little, you know, odd after that. I don't know. But, 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 but he was going to live. He was safe on the planet, you see. This isn't a call to child sacrifice. In fact, it gives us a picture. We could play with this if we wanted of what God has done for us in Jesus by offering us Jesus as the substitute, even as he offered this substitute for Isaac. Because you remember what happened is, as, as Abraham goes to kill him, he raises his hand to kill him, but, but then the Lord stops him and he offers this substitute, this ram. But in verse 12, um, well, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, And he said, here am I. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or anything or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now, God knew that before because he's God. But this is the faith, according to James, that saves. It's the faith that acts. It's the faith that says, I believe God. God has said this, thus I will do it. Now I know that you fear me. Now what's fascinating is we have here that when Abraham said to the people that he was going to go with Isaac, he said, we'll return. What an odd thing to say. Now he could have just been, uh, he knew that if he says I'm going to kill him up there, maybe they wouldn't have let him go. 
But the author of Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that Abraham offered his son because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. You just get a sense of Abraham's thinking. Well, God said, I'm going to have many descendants. Isaac is my only son. If I'm going to have any descendants, it's going to come through Isaac. God has told me to slay my son. He's going to raise him from the dead. All right? Why? Because God always honors his promises. So I'll do it. That's a response of faith, you see. And that's James' point. That's James' point. Let me read this again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? If you had asked James, James, is he, is, he, is he declared righteous before God by his faith? Oh, yes. But we know that. It's shown, just as he said in the other illustrations, it's evidenced by the fact. This faith is evidenced by the fact of what he did. That faith saves. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. We can see it. Here's faith. Here's the completion of it. We believe. Here's what we do. What we do is a completion, if you will, fulfillment of our faith. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. He wasn't terrorized, but he was a friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So if... You're asked, will your faith save you? And you say, yes. How do you know that? Because God has made a promise that we're saved by grace through faith. All right. But how do you know that you really have faith? That's what James is dealing with. How do you know that this is real faith? Final illustration, verse 24. And you see, a person is justified by works. I'm sorry, verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? You know the story. You can read it in Joshua in the opening chapters, chapter 2 through 6, really, for her. But, but, but we see that, you know, the spies enter the land. They're going to get caught. And so she hides them. And so when her people come to her and say, where are they? She says, they went that away. Go find them. And they didn't go that way. She was hiding them. And why did she do it? She did it because she heard that the God of the Israelites was strong and powerful. Did she really believe that? She must have. Because she was willing to defy her own people and risk her own life. Because she knew that the God of the Israelites was more powerful than her own people. We know that because of what she did. That's the point of it, isn't it? So he goes on, for the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Are we saved by our works? No, not in that sense. Are we justified by our works? No, not in that sense. But what justifies our faith? That is, what says we really do have faith? (laughs) How we live. The two are inexorably tied together. Now again, it's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> I love you all so much because when I preach hard things like from James, you thank me, right? Because I know what this is doing to you. It's doing the same thing to me and has been, right? Man. But you get the logic of it. You understand that. It makes perfect sense to us. 
That's why repentance is such a gift. That's why when we come together to gather to worship, I know sometimes it feels ritualistic to you to make this prayer of confession. But it's a liturgy that forms a habit in our lives. It's something we always know that we come before God, we can confess our sins. That is such a gift. We don't come in the beginning of our worship service and offer all the stuff we've done and say, God, be impressed with me. (laughs) We come into a worship service, I assume you wake up in the morning like this. Then we come before God and we we don't offer him all the stuff we've done. We say, I'm really sorry. I get it. Please forgive me. Now help me. I do believe. I say I believe and I I really do. And I really do believe that you've credited that faith as righteousness. That you've declared me to be righteous in the sight of Jesus. Now I really do believe. And so now help me live that out. Help me really love. Help me love my husband. We love my wife. In all those, all those times when we're in the kitchen together. and Right? Those little things. Those big things. Wherever it is. Now, some of you guys are thinking, I'm never in the kitchen with her. <laughs> that never happened. But you know what I mean. Or love your kids. Or love your parents. Or really love your friends. Really love your enemies. See, God, really help me do that. I know that's what's consistent with this faith. I know that's what this faith is really working in me. And I know I've received the righteousness of Christ. Now, enable me to, to now express the righteousness of Christ in the context of my own life. Please transform me in that way so that I can have assurance. And so that others can be blessed. And they can turn to you and glorify you by the things that I do. You see, that's, that's the ultimate of it. So that's the thing today. The thing today for us is to examine our lives. The thing today for us is to confess our sins. And to repent. And to plead with God. To give us strength to enable us to help us to do that which is right and then do it. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you would be with us, that you would help us uh, to live this out. We know it's true, God. It's, It's just true. We know it's obviously true. And we say we believe in Jesus. So what does that really mean? It means some doctrinal things. It means we believe these right things about Jesus. But... We trust him. But it means that if that's real faith, then we should see it. So help us, God, in that, to see it. Be with us, I pray. Many of us on this day are going through really difficult things. Our faith is being really tested. Father, help us obey you in the midst of those tests. Might be a relational test. We're tempted, perhaps, to relate to another human being in a way that you said we shouldn't. 
So please help us, I pray, to obey you. To show that our faith is really real. It may be that we're discouraged because of illness, because of cancer, because of heart issues, because of other issues like that. And we pray, God, that you would strengthen us. And even in the midst of that test, that we continue to trust in you and speak kindly to others, even in the midst of our own pain. I pray for those who are graduating today, high school, college, others. That you be with them and bless them in their lives in such a way, God, that they would live out their faith. I pray you'd bless those in need to help them. Those who are in need of financial care. Those who are in need of physical healing. I think this morning for our dear brother Rick Pratt as he's healing from his shoulder surgery. God, that you'd be with him and, and heal him to reduce the intensity of the pain, I pray. Help him, God, in the midst of this. And others, Father, who are suffering. Father, be with us. Enable us as people who believe in Jesus to love one another as Christ has loved us, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to obey you, God, in all that you call us to. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.